0: Tom Chick, you are listening to the quarter to three games podcast. We talk to the people who make the forum what it is about the games that matter to them. Today we have Dean, whose actual name is Dean O'Donnell. Uh, and Dean, you said that you do not use your full name because you are hiding from whom.
1: From my students, usually, mm-hmm. because
0: otherwise they would look you up online. They would be able to to hound you on quarter to three about excuses for why papers are late and whatnot. Yeah,
1: they generally do. Yes, I uh, I keep my my general internet presence away from them because they do Google me, and like I, I I had a bunch of kids who I was playing Left for Dead with. <laughs> Um, and their job was to keep me alive mm-hmm. so you're
0: you're using your students to help you game, yes, and on more than one occasion, actually, I know from your posting history now now tell us about what kind of stuff you teach. Tell us about you as a teacher
1: okay um I teach uh game development uh I teach actually three classes right now uh but i'll I'll be adding a fourth one. Next year? Well, actually, five. Um, I teach a course on uh, uh, critical studies of games mm-hmm. uh, where I get them to play a lot of games and start thinking about them like developers as opposed to like consumers, mm-hmm. um, and I make them play a lot of bad games, um, <laughs> which, you know, they, they have. To, if they have to play for so long, then... Uh, as a consumer, you're not normally going to play beyond a certain point, beyond the point where you say this is a bad game. But as a developer, if I assign it to you and say what what's good about this game, then you've got to come up with something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I teach storytelling in interactive media and games, and that's where um, mostly we uh, I, I get them to stop having authorial control and let let players have some I- input into the game, mm-hmm. into the story. Um, and it it's actually, that's the one I just finished teaching, and we always end up the year with them making a big ARG, an alternate reality game.
0: Ah, because um, you, you've also taken the the point on a few ARGs on quarter to three, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yes.
1: Yes. Um, usually about this time, I will I will go find an ARG to play and uh, play it for my summer. Um, now explain real quick what I know what an
0: ARG is, but I, I constantly forget what that stands for. Alternate reality game? No, that's not right. Uh,
1: yes, that is absolutely oh. correct. Okay, good, right? Uh, um, and that's basically uh, they also like to be called a transmedia experience. <laughs>
0: TME doesn't quite sound as snappy as arg. Right.
1: <laughs> right. Everybody would rather sound like a pirate. Right. <laughs> <Which one? laughs>
0: uh, okay, so um, the, go on. I want to hear about your other classes, and then I'm going to ask you specific questions about some of these. So this Okay. Is
1: awesome. And uh, I teach social issues in interactive media and games, where we try and figure out um, how games are changing the world and why and um, if for the better or worse or both, um, and I teach actually I still teach a class in playwriting. That's mm-hmm. my old self, mm-hmm. and uh, next year I will be teaching a a high level course on level design. Wow! So I, I'm actually uh, figuring that out this summer, D- Dean. Those
0: so first of all those first three this idea of critical studies. Where, you know what, you've got to play a bad game. You, you can't just play the stuff you like. Storytelling in games and social issue in games. Right right there, those three things, Dean, you are my hero. <laughs> I think everybody <clears throat> who wants to talk about video gaming or who wants wants to be conversant in it and really know what's going on other than just playing the latest great stuff, Those are those are awesome. I want to take all three of your classes. Can I sit in on them for free? Sure. Awesome.
1: Now, wait a minute. Hold on. Hold on a second. Where are you? Uh, I am in. Uh, well, actually, I'm currently in Framingham, Mass. Uh, I teach in Worcester, Mass. Yeah, that
0: commute is not going to work for me, Dean.
1: Can, can, well, you can come out for seven weeks, and I don't know. Can you move these to L.A.? <laughs> oh,
0: rats. <laughs> so this critical studies class. Let's talk about this one first. Uh, I love the idea of of people having to parse and discuss. What, make, like, like what makes a bad game and what good lessons you can draw from maybe a bad game. Uh, give me an example of how something goes in this class. What kind of bad games do you make them play, and how do they tend to react?
1: Um, I, will, I will basically pick, I, I have 25 kids in the class, so I have to come up with 12 games every week. Uh, so oh, they don't all play the same thing. No, ah. uh, I I have one game that I make them all play the the final week of it all, um, and and that this year was the path. Mm-hmm. Uh, be, basically, because I figured they'd all hate it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and if you read quarter to three, most
0: of the people there hate it. I um, would argue, by the way, I, I would, I'm totally fine with calling the path a bad game. We we can talk about that in a second, but I sure do not uh, think
1: <laughs> um, uh, I I would say it's an anti-game. Yep. Um, but some of them latched onto it and really loved it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they so I'm I'm pulling weird flash games, just stuff that got posted immediately. I'm very uh, un. Uh, I usually play them for about five minutes before I make them play them for at least an hour. Uh-huh. <laughs> um and and every week we actually we look at uh some aspect of the game so uh one week it'll be user interface uh one week it'll be controls uh one week it'll be story mm-hmm. um, and sometimes there won't be a story uh, and then they have to deal with that <laughs> Did, um, do you ever find that you've picked something like you mentioned
0: the path some of them really took to that do you ever find that you pick something and get a completely different reaction from them than you expected.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um I was I was kind of amazed that well actually the two of the women uh in the class are the only ones who played the path to completion. Mm-hmm. Which tells me something right there. Um and then the the arty farty beret wearing kid Uh, actually went so far as to email the developers of The Path and tell them how awesome their game was (laughs) and uh, buy the Limited Collector's Edition, uh, which for $60 you get Polaroids of all the girls. Uh, You get uh, the game on a CD, which... uh, I don't have. Um, and you get all, all sorts of, you know, artist statements and stuff.
0: I had no idea there was a collector's edition of the path. I would have totally been on board with that.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's like a signed thing. They only made uh, a thousand of them, I think. mm mm-hmm. um, And uh, I think you could still buy them. It's like 60 bucks. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, what, uh, so what was the path one? You said they all played or that just one group played?
1: No, they all played. Okay. Uh, and and now tell me
0: what the the typical reaction was to the path.
1: I hate this game. It's not even a game. I don't know what's going on. This is dumb. Uh, I, I can't, if, if I'm, uh, it moves too slow. If I run, then I can't see anything. Mm -hmm. Um, If I walk, um, it makes me crazy. And and then it finally starts showing me things on a HUD, and I go there and nothing much happens. (laughs) Uh, Did many of the people respond to the fact that
0: I, I think one of the brilliant things about the path is that it is so preoccupied with something you rarely see in video games, and that's namely the experience of, of women, of what it's like to be a woman and how women react to things. Uh, was that something that a lot of them
1: noticed or cared
0: about, or did it seem to be a hook for many of them?
1: Um, well, we talked about that because, I mean, I don't get a lot of women in the games classes. Ah, mm-hmm. Uh, so there, there were probably five in this class. It was a 25-person tw- class. So, uh, four or five. And the two women were the ones who, who not only completed it, but the one woman, she got all 144 flowers. Wow. Yeah. Um, and she said that she actually got 150, that there are secret flowers. <laughs> How about that? Uh, and I asked, you know, well, what happens when you get them all? And she's like, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> That's so the path, isn't it? Yes, exactly. So uh, uh, once I start talking to them about things like um, every other game you have to stay alive to win, but this game you have to die to win, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they go, oh, yeah. Um, and and every other every other game we we have to uh, collect things to get bonuses, um, here, you collect things for no reason whatsoever. Mm-hmm. You get nothing for it. Um, uh, so so we talk, and even when you finish all the girls, um, it, they just come back, and you get to re-experience the whole thing. I think mm-hmm. that's a spoiler, but sorry. <laughs> That way to ruin the path (laughs) team. Sorry. Um, they, there's, I'm not exactly sure because I didn't get all the memories for all the girls. Mm -hmm. Um, I did play through all the girls, but especially, I, you know, the first three girls you play in that game, you don't even know what the hell's going on. Right? Um, it's, it's about the third girl where you go, oh, I understand. Um, what I'm supposed to do here and you've already screwed up the first two girls. <laughs> so the only way to see if getting everything for all girls is to play it through a second time. Mm-hmm. From the beginning and I it's a it takes about 12 hours to play and I I I haven't done that.
0: Uh the the hook for me for the path and what would keep me going what would ultimately kept me going through it. Was how distinct the girls were, and the little snippets of prose, which I thought were were so intriguing. Uh, it's, uh, so, for me, yeah, that's
1: it, yeah. We we've been talking about it as a poetry game. Yep. Um, as a as a game that's trying to recreate um, the experience of reading poetry. Hmm. Um. And I. I I think it's too it gets too literal when it puts up those little pieces of of prose or poetry or whatever the heck they are now, how do you mean literal
0: like what do you mean it gets too literal
1: um I think that that making me read stuff um in such an atmospheric game uh it goes against the actual kind of impressionism of the game okay fair point mm-hmm um so so that's one of the things I don't like about the game, and, and frankly, half the time those things popped up and went away before I noticed or had finished reading them.
0: I, uh, yeah, I had a problem, too, with the integration of text with the game. I, I wish that that had been handled a little bit more smoothly or carefully, because I wanted to read the text, I wanted to uncover the bits, and... Uh, the the way that it was either popping up too slowly or like you say it would go away before I could read it. Uh, I, I wish they'd found some other way to do that, or they'd let you sort of unlock bits of it and and go over it at your leisure. Um, so I'm I'm with you there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, by the way, I am. I just wanted to send a quick shout out. We had scheduled a Bill Dungserman to come onto the podcast. He ended up wussing out. Uh, actually, I think he was just very busy that week, and I would love to reschedule with him. But I, he hated, hated, hated the path. And I so wanted to have him on, just because I really like. Talking to people who have completely different right. opinions that, that, than mine, and I, I wanted to hear more about why he hated the path. And it, so, unfortunately, Dean, it sounds like you appreciate it for what it is. So I can't have that kind of interesting discussion with you, Rat.
1: Yeah, I, I, I didn't choose the path as my game, and uh, here we are. I'm usurping poor Bill's game. <laughs> uh, so, so the critical studies
0: class sounds great. Uh, so you don't make them play like crappy, buggy East European shooters. That don't run very well with unoptimized no. engines. I, I,
1: I, actually, sometimes uh, they'll get um, some like beta of an MMO. Oh, ouch! Wow, that's sadistic. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so I had one guy, um, or actually, two two kids were supposed to be playing this uh, blocky MMO. It looked like Legoland, um, and uh, the the major component was that it's it was kind of a second lifey thing where you build these elaborate structures but kind of out of legos but they're not really legos cuz they didn't have that license <laughs> right um and i got back these um these long well these these kind of an- analyses about the the combat system and uh uh they said that the the building system hadn't been implemented yet um and i went and it had so they're making up stuff what's going on with your students
0: there what was that
1: i i think they were not um they they did not play it for very long
0: ah right you know it sounds like one of those reviews you read where like that guy didn't finish that game he's making up stuff (laughs) exactly
1: and if you go to the website and they 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 bill it as a building MMO where you share your buildings. Um, And you give me something about the combat engine. I'm going to look, you know,
0: I don't know. So I totally, yeah, I totally am relating that now. I see reviews written by reviewers who obviously have not done their homework. And that
1: drives me crazy. I hate that. mm -hmm. (laughs) So (laughs) I hope you busted them. Uh, Uh, Yeah, I did. (laughs) Yeah. The other thing I get a lot of is that the game won't run on my computer. Oh, is that like a dog ate my homework kind of, the, the latter-day version of that? Uh, usually it's earlier in, it, it's that it really won't run on their computer. Huh. Uh, and uh, then I just give them one of the other 12 games. Right, right. and uh, Or I tell them, just keep going until you find one that works on your computer.
0: Now, these students are they uh, are they wanting to get a are they wanting to go into game development or are they taking your class because they like video games? Uh, what kind of people do you find in this class?
1: Well, this these class? are all uh, future game developers. Hopefully, okay. mm-hmm. uh, we started about five years ago, a little over five years ago, uh, an interactive media and game development program at at our fair institution WPI um, and it was uh, and and we've since you know built we've hired people we've gotten labs and such um, so I was uh, I got on that committee uh, very early on uh, because I was the guy who played games Ah, right, right. yep so uh, and and basically now we've got a hundred and seventy-five majors Mm-hmm. Um, all of whom are either there, – there are two tracks to the program. One is an art track and one is a tech track. Uh, so, and, and since we've been primarily a tech school since 1865 when it was established, it's an engineering school, we thought we were going to get just tons and tons of – programmers and now my phone is ringing it's one of your um, students he can't he can't get the, computer, the game to run in his computer yes no <laughs> um let me just i'm turning down the volume <laughs> well my wife's answering um okay so uh so you're uh, getting yeah. more
0: artists than you expected you're getting more people interested in that side of the business
1: absolutely right. and uh we've got a whole bunch well we've we've hired a whole bunch of visual artists um, because we didn't have any when we started the program. Mm-hmm. So we've got um, a bunch of artists on the art side. I'm on the art side uh, as the the writer slash designer. Um, and this year we, we hired our first real honest to God game designer, uh, Brian Mariarty. Um, who's an old infocom guy mm-hmm. um, to come in and teach game design? Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, it's it's I don't know you you guys you've seen and there's been various discussions on the forum about uh, game design programs and most of the actual uh, developers are like I didn't need any game <laughs> design program rah. <laughs> <laughs> But but I tell the kids all the time, you know, the, the first I don't know fifty years of film, there were no film programs, right. and uh, people you know bootstrapped into that industry and just became cameramen or directors or whatever. Sure. Um, and I you know I like to see from from the kids I'm teaching that kind of. Uh, 70s auteurship that we got in the in, <laughs> once we had film programs in America. Right. You
0: know. now, now you mentioned the storytelling class. Uh, give me Dean O'Donnell, an excellent mm-hmm. example of storytelling in video gaming and a terrible example of storytelling in video gaming.
1: Um, well, excellent is is oblivion. Okay. That that took me through a whole year's worth of classes, just citing Oblivion stuff, um, and terrible Hotel Dusk.
0: Ah, okay. Well, let, let's, let's parse these for a second. So, Oblivion, because it's an open world game, you uncover the story in bits and pieces at your own pace, uh, and there are little uh, little sub stories lurking around this world, like that. that
1: well, that, <coughs> and you've got you've got this whole open world, and you've got these parallel stories um so you've you've got your four basic faction stories and your uh your main story arc and then you've got even smaller um area concerned you know this town is having this problem okay. kind of stories so i usually use that as a as a way of getting around you know branching storytelling is a big no no because you have to write of of (laughs) all this content that no one will ever see. Um, But what they did with Oblivion was make, instead of branches, they made parallel story paths that you could hop between, Mm -hmm. you know? So, um, so my story that I got through Oblivion uh, or fallout three is the same thing is um, with, with the, with the, the exception of the the main story path that then I can say I am done. You know, I have succeeded at the main quest and and I have finished this game. Um, With the exception of that, the jumping around between all the different story paths um, makes for very different stories for everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, At the same time, it's the same, kind of uh framework Mm -hmm. so and and in the storytelling class it's all about uh writing a framework that the player can rattle around in yep yep uh and now
0: what's wrong with hotel dusk i have not played it but i know of it as uh i've actually messed around with it a little bit it's just a a little adventure on the ds right it's sort of a mystery yes yeah
1: Yes, and it got great reviews, mostly because of the animation, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's it's very, very linear, um, and it uses magic objects. Um, so you you have to find and combine a bunch or, or use a, an object at a, a particular time. So if you have to get through a door, you have to find the key to that door or something. Mm-hmm. Um, But it also has a chapter breakdown. So um, in one chapter, you will go into a room and search it thoroughly, and there will be no objects that are usable in that room. But once the chapter changes to the next chapter, you might go in there, and now objects that that were useless or that just didn't activate before now are what you need. Mm Mm-hmm. So you end up going through the same areas over and over and over. <laughs> looking for for the pixel. Right, right. You know, uh, that, that's the correct one. Also, there there was towards the end there was a point where you had to make a choice and uh you didn't know which one and one choice on, on this branch, uh and it was a branching path, um One choice led to game over. But it didn't There was about 30, 45 minutes of conversation of pressing A. Ah, right, uh, right. Between that choice and game over.
0: So it wasn't necessarily that the story was bad, it was just an example of how the game didn't serve its story very well. Sort of that, that disconnect between gameplay and the story they're trying to tell.
1: Um, yeah, and also the the story itself didn't resolve. It, it was so obviously, oh, we're going to have a sequel. Ah, right, uh, right. That in the end, uh, uh, there were, there was a major thread. I forget what, uh, and it was thoroughly unsatisfying. And the truth of the matter was that 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 choice that took thirty minutes to to pan out. When I went back and did it again, I forgot what choice was the correct one and chose the wrong one a second time. Nice.
0: One of the things I love, Dean, about writing about and playing video games right now is how there are so many different kinds of storytelling in games, and it really does seem like something that – that game developers are responding to and are embracing. I, I love the fact, you know, you mentioned Oblivion, uh, mm-hmm. and I think of Oblivion in a way as almost the equivalent of like Dickens or Gabriel Garcia Marquez and that it's telling this big story with all these threads and that it's, it's epic uh, and it spans different races and generations and it goes to backstory and your actions versus something more focused like, like Bioshock 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we even, in a way have, I, I think of Flower on the PS3 as almost like a short story. Like, Flower is our equivalent of, of a Raymond Carver short story. Uh, right? right. Uh, and I love how there are different kinds of storytelling. And even something terrible like Hotel Dusk that you're talking about, I love the fact that it's trying to tell a story. And that, uh, you know, we, we've always had these kind of adventure games. And Uh, But I love how many different kinds of storytelling there are and how many games can support different kinds of stories these days. It's just hugely encouraging to me. Uh, And and so that segues then into your third class, is uh, Mm -hmm. social issues. Mm -hmm. Give me a good example and a bad example of games that address social issues. Because I I think next to storytelling, this this is, I think, where video games really need to and are starting to grow up and really come into their own. So where does it work and where does it not work in terms of how you see video games?
1: Okay. Um, the game I open up the class with that I make them all play is Super Columbine Massacre RPG. Now, that's one of those things where I
0: avoid... That's a real game, right? It's not like some yes. joke web page some kids put together to get hits or something.
1: That's nope, a real game. Okay. absolutely a real game. Okay. Um, it is... It's made by a, a, a film student uh named Danny Ladoni uh he was at Emerson here in boston uh and then for for grad school he went to american University in washington d c um, but he 's from Colorado um and he was in high school around the time of the columbine massacre mm-hmm. um, and uh, he he wanted to make a documentary about the columbine massacre. Um, and he did all sorts of research, but he didn't really have the tools as a high school kid. He, it was pre, you know, everybody has a high-def v- video camera uh, and and friends to put together a documentary. He didn't have that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so he just let it sit. And when he got to Emerson, um, at some point he found... Um, uh RPG maker light or uh, it's it's a tool set to make Japanese RPGs. Uh that's that's and it's like bad, pixelated, uh not great looking, but you know, if you want to make uh no you know, the Dragon Quest stuff that's on the DS except for the PC. Right. Um you can make it with this stuff. Um and he found the tools you know this he said, "Okay, am I going to sit down and and make my documentary um, using this this little tool and he did um, and he posted it on the internet um, and told a couple of friends about it um, and then it kind of went, you know it went viral before there was such a thing uh, and he he was outed by Uh, a friend or a brother of one of the, the Columbine victims. Um, The guy, you know, posted his, did, did the whole internet stalker thing, found everything about Danny, you know, including satellite views of his home um, and said, this is, this is the guy who's publishing this. Um, He, you know, shame him because he has made this horrible, horrible game. Um. The game isn't horrible. the game um, is is boring um, because you're, you you basically have unlimited ammo um, against unarmed people mm-hmm. um, which isn't isn't very uh, you know challenging as far as a game is concerned. Um, but it is a, a pretty good documentary of what exactly happened that day, and you will learn stuff that that the only other place um, I've I've seen that that's you know as exhaustive is um, a book called Columbine, uh, a nonfiction book by a New York Times guy or something like that. Um, so anyway, so uh, he made this game, and it's also. Super Columbine Massacre RPG exclamation point. So he, he's kind of got this social commentary about uh, um, the, the happy-go-lucky way we, we make games. You know, you're essentially committing genocide in many games. And, you know, you're killing every kind of orc you can possibly kill. Um, but we don't think twice about that. Um, so here it is: you're 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 killing kids in in a high school, um, and every time it says, you know, the trench coat mafia has won again! Yay! Just like at the end of every battle in a JRPG, mm-hmm. where everybody kind of jumps up and down and spins around. So I, I make the kids play this game, um, and, and at the end, you have to uh, you are playing as the the killers or as one of the killers, um, and at the end of the, the first half, you have to commit suicide in the library, much like they did. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, it, it goes to a cut scene of, uh, and there, there is no gore whatsoever in the game, There's except at, at this point, he shows a picture of the dead killers. Um, and then um, you wake up in hell, <laughs> um, and hell is populated with, uh, instead of um, unarmed high school kids, they're all the, the actual demons from Doom. So you have to run around uh, and uh, survive these demons. Um, and it, it's actually very difficult unless you have killed a lot of the kids in the high school previously. Mm -hmm. So essentially the more evil you are in the first half massacring high school students, um, the more success you will have in hell, which is an interesting little, Mm -hmm. uh, little commentary. So anyway, so I make the kids play this and they come back and they're like, this is horrible. This is disgusting. (laughs) Um, you know i i was uh I, my roommate saw me playing it uh and first he said that uh, us game majors are sick and twisted and then he wanted to play it too, you know that sort of thing and then i actually uh show a documentary um that Danny Ladoni made uh afterwards so so the first the first part is all about his outing um, then the second part is about another school shooting that happened in Canada um, where the the shooter w- had this game on his hard drive. And so the media picked it up and uh, yeah. went nuts with it, saying, you know, this game taught him how to go out and kill people in a cafeteria. Um, and then the third part is all about the slam dance thing where – uh, they actually uh solicited Danny to to put the game in their guerrilla game competition mm-hmm. and then uh when it was chosen as a finalist um by the judges the uh the the people running the the competition threw it out um they said we don't we can't have this in our competition mm-hmm. Uh, And the judges then said, wait, you solicited him, and we think it's a worthy game, and this is the guerrilla game competition. This is the, you know, edgy game competition, and this is probably the edgiest game. Um, And they said, we're going to lose sponsors. And at that point, uh, USC, who had been sponsoring the competition, pulled out their sponsorship Um, and half of the end, the the finalists pulled out of the competition. Um, and they still had the competition, uh, but, and they invited Danny to go and he, he agreed to go as long as the organizer of the competition would sit down with him and be interviewed, um, and and it becomes a real kind of meditation on uh what is the role of game uh, of the game in society uh there there was a a, a game ab- or a movie about the columbine massacre uh called elephant directed by Gus Van Sant mm-hmm. um, that uh won I think it was shown at Sundance one, some, a number of film festival things is generally regarded as, you know, a, a, a good movie. Um, and they would have, you know, killed or died to have, have that movie in their movie competition. Um, but they, they won't have this game in their competition competition because somehow games are different. um, some by by making me play uh, Eric Klebold, uh, the killer, one of the killers, um, I am somehow complicit. Um, and and the question I ask the kids is: Are we are we all complicit because we played the game? Um, and is is the the thing the kids see in the uh, in the documentary is a whole bunch of really smart people wrestling with games as a new form of media. Right. Now I
0: want, I want you Dean to take off your teacher hat. Uh, Okay. Yeah. I know as a teacher, a lot of what you do is you present this stuff to the kids and you want them to sort of puzzle it out on their own. I'm curious what you think personally about super Columbine massacre RPG. Um, The stuff that you ask your kids, how would you answer that? Uh,
1: I think it is uh, a form of art. I think it is not a fun game, and I think we need games that aren't fun but are compelling. Mm -hmm. And I hate that word, but there's no other word for it. Did did you play uh, Modern Warfare 2?
0: Yes. Did did you skip? I presume you did not skip the no Russian level.
1: I did not skip the no Russian level. How did you
0: feel about that? Um... Again, no teacher hat. This is like gamer hat. This is like Dean O'Donnell, a guy who plays video games, a guy who's rooting for the industry. How did you feel about no Russian?
1: Uh, I thought it was dumb because mm-hmm. I couldn't I well, the the story itself is makes no sense. Um if if I'm a rookie guy and I'm there to get this this horrible bad guy and there he is right in front of me and I've got a you know a super machine gun in my hands. I'm not going to go mowing down civilians when I can just mow down the five guys in front of me who are the, the you know the the super bad guys. Mm-hmm.
0: But it, didn't it it, didn't it make you see from a different perspective the act of terrorism? Didn't it make you think about it? No. Okay. <laughs> I'm playing devil's advocate. I don't know if you No, can <laughs> not at all.
1: I, and I know you hated it, too. Um, uh,
0: so, see, because I, I think, yeah, you, definitely, like, it, it sounds like what the fellow was doing with Super Columbine Massacre RPG was presenting a perspective, and I think there's a huge difference presenting that perspective with, with something provocative versus doing it for, for simply titillating reasons like they did in No Russian. Uh, right, and and it, it to me, I am dismayed, absolutely dismayed, Dean, to see people talk about and approach No Russian as if there was some perspective or some something thought provoking there. I mean, one of them is simply lurid sensationalism, and the other one, it sounds like, tell me the fellow's name again, Lebron. What did you say his name was? Danny, Danny Ladoni. Ladoni, right? Uh, I, you know, the fact that this guy's background and that he wants to talk about it and make people people think about it and he's not promoting something uh yeah i i that just that immediately comes to mind is the difference between this guy and those goofballs at infinity ward who i think have no idea what they're doing when right. they present something like no russian no russian is clumsy it lacks perspective and it, it it's i frankly find it disgusting uh whereas I might also find Super Columbine Massacre RPG disgusting, but for very different reasons and to very different effect. Uh,
1: Absolutely. There, there was actually a, another guy who made a, a really dumb game about the Virginia Tech shootings. Mm-hmm. And Danny actually called this guy uh, as the media blew up. And And I know all this because I had Danny up to talk to the class mm-hmm. uh, the first year I taught it. So... Uh, this guy, um, he made he he was a moron. He made a game called Virginia Tech shooting or something like that. Um, and Danny called him and said, "Look, I, I'm about the only other guy who knows what you're going through." <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so here's what you can do, and here's what seemed to work for me, which was engage in a dialogue about. The issues that that the game brings up, right? And the guy told him he could go screw, and uh, told the the world that if if somebody would pay him five thousand dollars, he'd take the game down. <laughs> nice. Well, then, at least you know what's on his mind. Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, I noticed, Dean, in talking you. And I'm I'm disappointed that you, of all people, you seem regularly to use the words fun and boring, which I I personally try to steer clear of. Are you okay with that? Is that something you struggle with? um, (laughs) Because you must get it from your students all the time. You know, that look, articulate better than don't just dismiss something as fun and boring. Articulate it more. Is that something that you struggle with, with your students or with yourself? Both.
1: Okay. Um, (laughs) In fact, I have... Outlawed the use of the word "fun" in critical studies. Sweet, I just, I'm doing a fist pump right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, just like in storytelling, they're not allowed to use uh, pirates, ninjas, or <laughs> uh, zombies.
0: Wow, that's just that's out of bounds. That's that's beyond the pale,
1: Dean. <laughs> zombies, come on! How can you not use zombies? Too many zombie stories <laughs> over the years. I just I want to shoot myself. I'm okay with with that,
0: ruling out ninjas. I'm on the fence about pirates, maybe, but zombies. Come on, Dean. <laughs> wow, you're mean. You're that yeah, guy. Um,
1: <laughs> the, we actually the first year I taught the storytelling course. Um, it was that some evil corporation was poisoning the food at at the school, and uh, this was the arg that they had to to puzzle out and it was it was an amazing uh little game where they had they had an article in the school newspaper about a blood drive that never happened Mm -hmm. um where everyone who gave blood was infected with this this uh half of a poison but the other half was being served through the the college cafeteria and at the end at the very end when things were about to things had to be finished um if the the players managed to you know hack the the evil corporation's mainframe and and steal the files that they needed then then antidotes would be distributed all around campus and these these little jars of uh, or bottles of good and plenty appeared all around campus <laughs> um but if not, uh, then then all all the kids would turn into zombies, right? What? Okay, Which was and, the problem? Well, there was an actual army of zombies waiting for them to to fail. They they had recruited all these kids ah, to go nice. to campus, and at two minutes of seven, it had to be either solved by by seven or failed by seven. At two minutes of uh, they they solved it. Well,
0: see, now, I'm so glad you had not, because that would have been a much weaker ARG if if Mr., you know, Professor Dean O'Donnell had banned zombies from the storytelling.
1: How dare but you? <laughs> they've also been banned. All that stuff has been banned now. They can't have the, the cafeteria poisoning people anymore, because the first three years, that was basically the story. Right.
0: I guess it's if you if it becomes too common a crutch. But come on, zombies are a metaphor for death and conformity. Uh yeah. you, you know, it's how, I, I you know, I hear the resignation in your voice and I guess I'm with you there. They they are overused, fair enough. I, I but They're love overused, zombies. Dean. They're overused exactly. They're overused because they're awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. as a, as a learning tool, yes, good point. Force people to use something else. I guess I'm okay with that.
1: Yeah, this year we had fairies. Um, but, like, those, the, the like, evil fairies that steal babies kind of Ah, heard. yes, yes, yes. Um, and we had ghosts.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So the, the, the way it works, I teach two sections, and each section designs a game, and the other section plays it, and it's kind of a competition between the two sections. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: So. Uh, there's a great movie with Samantha Morton that, oh, just came out. I'm not going to be able to think of the name of it, but it's... Uh, it it's it's a variation on the the evil little girl story, uh which was done so well recently in uh in Orphan um and some other movies. But the twist this time and this isn't a big deal because it's it's not like a, a spoiler or anything, it's pretty clear up front. Oh, it's called the Daisy Chain. Uh the twist this time is that the evil little girl isn't like a demon or anything, she's a little changeling fairy, uh it but, but menacing one. Uh
1: there was one where the little girl was a,
0: a midget prostitute. Uh, okay, you're, you're spoiling a movie that I don't want to mention. Uh, and you're, you're also not quite correct.
1: <laughs> no, I haven't seen it.
0: But. Right. Uh, so but <laughs> no, I recommend The Daisy Chain for, for okay. anyone who wants to see a cool use of the fairy mythology. It's a movie called The Daisy Chain with Samantha Morton. So I'll throw that out there. Now before we move on to the game, you want to talk about. You mentioned also you do a playwriting class, so you have a background in theater, correct? I do. How did that happen, and uh, what did you do in theater?
1: Uh, I I was a playwright. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I actually back when you were here in the Boston area, Tom. Mm-hmm. Back when you were going to to Harvard, I was going to Brandeis. Mm-hmm. Um. And uh, uh, I got my degree uh, and was involved in, you know, professional Boston theater. Had any, had a pile of plays produced here in Boston and some. I even had a couple produced in L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, um, you know, worked around. What kind of things were
0: Dean O'Donnell plays about? Oh,
1: I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you can't
0: shy away from that question.
1: Come on. <laughs> um, uh, mean people being mean to each other in funny ways, usually. Good. I like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a, one of my my plays was my uh, – it's funny. I, I wrote a play that totally imitated Mammoth, mm-hmm. right? So I'm going to screw it. Everybody says I sound a little like Mammoth, so I'm going to go whole hog, do the Mammoth thing, Write the whole mammoth play, and and that's that's the, probably my most successful play. It, it got published. It's been performed all over the world, even in like the UK. Um, well, I guess that's not all over the world, but I, I don't <laughs> think it's been produced in China. And and they made a little feature film out of it. Um, and it's about bill collectors being mean to each, to people. Nice. I like that. Good. <laughs> Uh, so, But I'm curious, you must, uh, I know you went to divinity school. I did, yes, here. But you said that you used that to do theater.
0: While I was in divinity school, I, I got a little impatient with uh, how focused you have to be in graduate studies. I, I was working on a master's degree in theological studies, and I got a little impatient with the level of focus and devotion, and I don't mean that in a spiritual sense, but in a lifestyle sense, the amount of devotion it it takes. Uh, So uh, as a little extracurricular activity, I started doing theater. Harvard didn't have a theater degree, but each dormitory would, would produce various plays over the course of the semester, and they would have an open call where you could come out and audition for plays. So uh, I remember a friend of mine, she told me, uh, you know, if you're, if you're getting bored with your graduate studies, why don't, you, why don't you go out and, you know, try out for a play? You know, lots of people do it. There are a lot of plays being produced. Uh, you can get a part. It would be something fun you could do. It would sort of take your mind off studies sometimes. So I went and did that, and I got offered lots of parts, and I just got totally sucked into that world. Uh, and uh, yeah, so while I was working on my graduate degree, I was also doing just a metric ton uh, of theater, uh, and I love
1: so, this. So, was that the first time you acted?
0: Uh, as far as actual uh, acting, yes, I had done a couple of high school plays, um, but I I think that was more a matter of showing off, basically. Like when, when you're a kid, I, I think yeah. uh, you know doing the whole high school play is basically a click. It's like a ready-made click that you get into, and actually a lot of theaters like that anyway. Uh, so I had done high school plays, but yeah, it was the first time that I had, uh, you know, because I, I discovered, I started, I did some Shakespeare, I did some classical theater, and I loved that sort of thing. So yes, as far as I'm concerned, it was the first time I did actual acting and, and took it seriously. Uh, yeah, I loved that. Um, so so
1: what, would, what would you consider your, your first part?
0: My first part was a Sam Shepard play. I can't remember the name, uh, but it made no sense to me because at the end of it, the the, the character's name is Rabbit, I think, and I can't remember the name of the play. That's terrible. But at the end of the play, and he's a sort of a shaman who's summoned by a couple of businessmen. And if you know Sam Shepard, he writes really he, he writes some really strange, weird plays, and they don't make conventional sense. He's got his own sort of, there's a Sam Shepard logic. So at the end of this play, Rabbit turns into a sort of a lizard-like monster. <laughs> That's kind of the end of the play. I remember having to spin around in a seat and put on makeup with my back to the audience, and the seat, the, the seat spins around later, and I've got fangs. And uh, uh, So that was the first time where, as an actor, I didn't really know what was going on, Or what I was doing, it wasn't up there to just show off. It it was really sinking into this weird alternate reality. You know, you talk about those ARGs, and I think people who really get into that sort of thing are the kind of people who might enjoy doing a play. Is look, here's this separate reality, and I'm just going to live in it for a while. And and I think video gamers appreciate that as well. Uh, So so doing that Sam Shepard play was the first inkling I got of... Here's a different reality, and I'm going to live in it for a couple of hours. And, and that's something also that is really valuable in classical theater, where the language and the structure is a completely different reality. It's like when you play a video game, there's a whole different vocabulary for how you interact with this world. Uh, and, and classical theater really taps into that. Um, so mm-hmm. all of that I discovered when I should have been in the library uh, you know studying the diacritical marks in the Book of Ruth and <laughs> learning Hebrew, and uh all of that was a huge distraction for me during my uh, graduate studies. Um, Did you do improv? No, I hate improv because improv ah. improv does not have that sense of rules improv uh doesn 't isn 't so much about here 's a world, get into it. Improv is quick make up this world as you go. And improv requires a lot of trust and a lot of quick thinking. It's not mm-hmm. something that you study and then live in, this separate set of rules. I, You know, maybe that's not fair, but I, I'm not good at improv, so no, I, I did not do a lot hmm. of improv. Why, is that something you liked, improv?
1: Well, I I start the storytelling class with a week of improv.
0: When you say a week, oh, oh, as far as like a week of studying improv, you mean?
1: Yeah, I get the 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 school's improv group to come in mm-hmm. like four of them and run them through basics of improv. And there are all sorts of rules of improv, you know, yes. there's, there's the yes. And exactly. Which exactly. Is, you know, what, I, what I'm trying to get the kids um, to, to think about is instead of uh, saying, this is my story. and and you're going to follow it, um, is to to let go. And the other guy says something, and you've got to say, okay, yeah, and – let me tell you about this, too. You know what? That, that's actually, Dean, a, a very fair point. And I, should, I should
0: specify that when, when, when you mention improv, so often with people in Los Angeles and with the comedy scene, improv is something you do to entertain people. And that's what I'm not good at, or right. that's what I really don't like. But improv as an exercise, as a first step to building a world, as, as a way to trust other actors you're working with, as a way to explore material, rather than entertain an audience, I love that, and that's an invaluable tool. And I see now that's what you're talking about. Because out here in Los Angeles, when you say improv, it's a bunch of funny people getting up, playing theater games to entertain an audience and get laughs. Uh, You know, like whose line is it anyway? Like that whole thing. Right. That's That's, what I don't care for, and that's what I'm terrible at. It's a good skill. I'm entertained by it, but I don't enjoy doing it. But what you're talking about, yes, I, I absolutely appreciate the value of, and it's a very important first step. In terms of creating worlds uh, and for theater, yeah,
1: yeah, right. So, I mean, I, I'm all for the written word because, you know, without somebody writing it beforehand, uh, I'd be out of a job. <laughs> uh, have, do
0: you know? Do you know uh, who Mike Lee is, a filmmaker? I do. So Mike, Mike Lee is for me a best example of how improv can be used to, to make world. The movie Naked, which he did with David Dulis, uh is it, commonly uh, talked about as if it was improvised. And in a way it was, and that's how Mike Lee works. But he doesn't just have the actors improvise and turn on the camera. He has the actors improvise as a way of writing the script. He uses improv as a building tool. Mm-hmm. From that, he assembles a shooting script, and he gets the actors comfortable with situations, and he develops those situations, and then he uses a shooting script. And I think movies like *Naked* and *Happy Go Lucky* are absolutely brilliant, uh, especially as an actor watching other actors. I love those movies, and I love how they are created from improv, even if they're not techn- technically improvised as they're shot.
1: Um, right, and and that's. That's kind of a an exercise that I you know I've done a lot in rehearsals when um, you're 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 trying to figure out what it you know what exactly is going on in a scene, yep. um, and so so just let's let's forget about the words and just improv on the scene. Yes, yes. And I've also
0: uh, I, I vividly recall uh, plays where the director has asked us to improvise a previous event that is referred to in the play, but that doesn't happen on stage. Uh, and, the, and the director's like, okay, your character's in the script. They talk about this scene. Now we're going to go back and we're going to improvise this scene that you've all talked about. You know your characters, so here's the situation. Let's have this event unfold and see how you react. And, you know, it's a touchy-feely, actor kind of exercise. Yeah. But it really gets you in touch with this idea of This is a past that your character has. Uh, Let's have in your memory, in your mind, what that would have been like when it happened. Uh, So, and again, that's improv, and that's an invaluable tool. I I really appreciate the use of that. Yeah. Uh, Do you still write plays? Is is that something that you still like to do? Uh,
1: Occasionally, Mm I at some point. I mean, do you do you still act?
0: No. Good Lord, no. <laughs> well, acting isn't something that you can just, you, you could sit down and write a play and be working on something in your spare time. Acting is a, a very focused, conscious decision you have to make. It takes a lot of energy, especially in Los Angeles, like if you're going out for auditions. Uh, right. The last acting I, I did was uh, I wrote a little short story as a screenplay and me and some friends got together and, and filmed it. And it was just a fun exercise for us to do to work together. Uh, and, and that was the last thing I would have done that would have been like acting. But it's not something, you know, it requires getting together with people and actually doing it, whereas writing a play is something you can do in your
1: spare time. Right. Um, but having written a play, then, like, there's the second half. Oh, yes. <laughs> get it done somewhere. Right. Um, and. It, it, at some point, I mean, I, this this goes back to, to uh, I guess, turning forty. Um, at some point, it, it's a, a line from House of Blue Leaves: um, "You get too old to be a young talent." <laughs> sure, sure. You know, so um, so I can't. What happened? What I saw over and over again when I was writing and getting my stuff done as a young man in in the early nineties, I could write a full length play with the expectation that, that a number of, of theaters around Boston or theater companies around Boston would at least read it, right. you know, and consider it. Um, nowadays. Um, well, over the years, what, what, theater companies seem to do um, is go towards the the 10 minute one act festival Mm -hmm. Um, because they could do uh, I don't know 10 one acts each 10 minutes long Um, you don't have to pay a playwright for a 10 minute one act in a festival Mm -hmm. getting into the festival is your prize Um, and the theater would see instead of having one playwright and all their friends come see it they would have 10 playwrights and all their friends and all the actors involved in in the the show come see it mm-hmm. so so you'd you'd have these festivals um and and i i can't tell you how many playwrights i've seen go from writing uh full-length plays to just cranking out 10-minute play after 10-minute play um and i still write 10-minute plays because um well uh, there's there's an annual festival every year at the college and uh my my old drama colleague has been yelling at me to write something for the festival for the last couple of years when i've been too busy but this year I, i you know i Spent an afternoon, and I wrote a quick ten minute play and you know it was funny, and they did it, and it was fine um and didn't that feel great um, hmm, yeah, okay. what's um, the hemming and hawing? It's just i if I'm gonna write something i'd I'd rather spend the time and energy to to really write. A long form, sure, you know, full length play, Mm -hmm. Um, because that's that's kind of where my training was, and it just again, it feels like these little short stories that you dash off um, were were what you did in order to get recognized for (laughs) (laughs) to be able to, to have someone then produce your full length play. Right. Right. Yes. But I kind of went the other way. I was getting my full-length plays done, <laughs> and and then everybody was like, "Well, that's nice and everything," but do you have anything ten minutes long? <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's I, I can completely understand that journey, Dean. In that, you know, you do theater and you 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 live in these emotional realities. Uh, and and the, the kind of theater I was doing, I had I, I got to do some great parts, and I, I really enjoyed them, and. Uh, they were they were a wonderful sense of like, like release and I, I, I they were creatively gratifying And then from that I move out to LA and I'm like I'm doing like one line on Beverly Hills 90210 yeah, which is sitting in the trailer for eight hours and they come out and they shoot it two times and then you go home and you get a A really ridiculously big paycheck for the amount of work, but there's nothing creatively gratifying about it and normally the pattern is you do that and presumably you get bigger and bigger parts and you have more creative input into a work. But for me it was completely the other way around is I'd done all these creatively gratifying things. And then I come out here and in the quote unquote big time, you know, Los Angeles and deliver one line and go home. And I just, I didn't enjoy that. And I, I don't miss that. And I have no desire to do any more of that.
1: (laughs) Well, did you do theater in LA?
0: Not really. Theater in L.A. is a weird scene, Dean. Uh, Theater in L.A. tends to be, I mean, there's good theater here, like professional theater, but a lot of theater out here tends to be people biding their time until they can get on TV or shopping around a script because they really want to write sitcoms or for television or movie scripts. So there are that kind of stuff adapted to stage. And the theater I've done out here, I've just not enjoyed at all. uh it's a very different scene and mm. uh yeah I I don't miss that. <laughs> mm.
1: You know because go ahead. I found a home in Boston with a particular theater company who liked my stuff mm. and uh I had a couple of directors who I really, you know, connected with and you know we did three or four plays uh, four four plays of mine over the course of like 6 years um and yeah, it was great. And every time it was like, yeah, I've I've gotten a play done in a major city in America, and you know now they're going to be beating down my door, and then nothing much happened. Mm-hmm. You know, so my my
0: fantasy about going back and doing any acting or any theater would be after I move away from Los Angeles, whenever that happens, and I move to. I don't know, back to Arkansas or to the Gulf Coast or wherever, and I live in a smallish town, and then I just do community theater with the people who, who live there. I, I look forward to doing that, and uh, that, that's sort of my fantasy about <laughs> if I ever act again. Mm-hmm. It'll just be at that level, just with a small group of people. I have really no desire to go anywhere with it. I just want to do it with other folks who love doing it, regardless of whether or not they're even good. <laughs> I don't even care about that. <laughs> this is the process I love. Uh, and not for ulterior motives, and not for any larger gain, just, just for the process. Uh, so that's, that'll be the next time I act, I think. <laughs> uh, Dean, I want to segue to, and I, I have no idea why on earth, after we've we've talked about these meaty discussions, why on earth is Neverwinter Nights 2? Now, I always say this a little facetiously to people, because I know why they pick the game they want to pick. But a guy like you, why do you gravitate to talking about Neverwinter Nights 2? two, like this, this, this,
1: what I, th- well, yeah, where, where does that come from? <laughs> well, um, uh, out, well, back when the call went out for the podcast, right? Um, I had just started playing it. Uh, so I'm really late to the party. Ah, I see. It was topical at the time. <laughs> and, and, it, well, it still is. I'm still playing it. <laughs> uh, it's a long game, I guess. <laughs> it is. It's very long. Um, and um, my students, I had a, for their senior project, one group of students um, made a Neverwinter Nights 2 mod. Ah. Uh, so it's been a year of working with the engine. mm mm-hmm. um, And the previous year, previous two years, uh, I've had groups of students working with Neverwinter Nights one, mm-hmm. um, and did did you know that Bioware would not will not hire a writer who hasn't submitted a mod? I did not know that.
0: Yeah. So so when they hire writers, it, 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 they 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 expect experience with the the modding system and their form of storytelling, as it were. Yes. That makes sense, though.
1: So so that was why I originally went to Neverwinter Nights when training the kids to say, hey, you know what? If you have experience with, with making mods for this, uh, BioWare will look at your resume. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they won't. Um, and I've since found out that um, they won't look at Neverwinter Nights 2, I believe, um, only Neverwinter Nights 1, because Obsidian actually made Neverwinter Nights 2. Right, right. Now, <laughs> so, Now, are you when you say you're still playing,
0: so you're you're obviously, I guess, looking at third-party mods, and I, do they call them modules? What do they call them? But, but basically the, the, the third-party adventures. Like, do you use this as a tool to look at that stuff, uh, or you're still playing the single-player campaign that it shipped with?
1: I am still playing the single-player campaign that it shipped with. Shipped with Wow, okay um, And I'm almost done with it <laughs> and, and it's like um, uh, One of the guys I played D&D with I was talking, I know It came up, I was playing Neverwinter Nights 2 Blah blah He's like, haven't you been playing that thing forever? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah Kind of what, I, But I go off and play other games And then come back and go off and So so like I spent two weeks just crafting in Neverwinter Nights 2. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which is crazy. Or or shifting uh shifting inventory so that, you know, the paladin has all the paladin crap and the the sorcerer has all the sorcerer crap.
0: Um now, now explain how good it is as, is it good? Because I've fiddled, I played the first Neverwinter Nights campaign through for a review. I've fiddled mm-hmm. with the second Neverwinter Nights 2, but never finished the campaign. Uh, how does, does Neverwinter Nights 2 stand up as a single-player RPG?
1: I think it does a lot of really interesting things. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, it, it, it goes to these cutscene, uh, I guess, I don't know, oh. it's, it's, it looks like widescreen movie. You know, um, but you can still have dialogue choices during the cutscene. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's a whole section where you're on trial for your life, and you mm-hmm. have to, you know, choose your responses to the to, to the prosecutor, um, which I'd never seen in a in an RPG before, right? Right. Um, and and uh, the way the way D and D works is you have uh, intimidate diplomacy and bluff as kind of your soft skills, your speaking skills. Um, and it really mattered if you put skill points into those things for, for those various conversational options, Mm -hmm. you know, if you, instead of like, like fallout has, uh, additional options open up if, you have high intelligence or high speech or whatever it is. Um, but Neverwinter Nights 2 clearly labels certain, certain options uh, intimidate or bluff or diplomacy. And you, uh, you have to remember, basically, if you're good at any of those things. Uh, because right. it will then test it against your score and see if you succeeded or failed on that conversational gambit based on a number a
0: die roll right and and now that goes back to their baldurs gate games doesn't it like that that's an old convention they were using isn't it
1: um and yeah sure um but they were just little and I don't recall in Baldur's Gate these kind of cinematic experiences.
0: Ah, right, right. In Baldur's Gate, it was just dialogue. Yeah, it was you just right. were reading the dialogue at the bottom of the screen. But they built this into... Oh, and actually, Dean, it, it occurs to me, I mean, this was Obsidian, but they were. it's also Bioware and Neverwinter Nights 1. You know, this is a big part of like how Mass Effect works. You know, these later RPGs, they create these cinematic things, and they give you different options for how this cinematic cutscene is going to unfold. And they do tie it into your skills or your choices. So you really, you, you sort of see the kernels of that in Neverwinter Nights too, don't you?
1: Yes. Um, you also see. Well, they they used this uh, uh, a, a circular interface thing, this ring interface in Neverwinter Nights one. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the most annoying thing ever. I, I truthfully. <laughs> Never finished the original campaign and never Winter Nights one because, you know. Okay, I want to cast a, a silence spell and is that a second level spell or a third level spell? I don't remember. <laughs> you got to go through um, that web, that ring web. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I have to go like three layers deep. And then I find out it's it, it's not a second level spell; it's a third level spell. So I want to go back out one, but in, I I click the wrong button, and now I'm back at the beginning, and I have to start all over again. And ugh, you know what? That's Dean?
0: Uh, I think that's for people who, once you really learn to use that, it's probably really easy to just click, click, click. You know, you know just navigate layers quickly assuming you're familiar with those layers. But yeah, if you're not familiar with those layers or if you're a guy like you who goes away from a game and then comes back into it after being away a long time, that, that can get infuriating. I imagine.
1: Yeah. 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 It, it's, the, the interface in Neverwinter Nights 2 is very kind of wowish. Mm-hmm. Uh You've got, you've got a button bar at the bottom that you can assign various powers to your button bar um you're and you've got like a quick cast thing and really the uh, it's funny because you know we've been talking about storytelling 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 but uh the appeal of of all of the D&D games uh going back to the the gold box games um is is this kind of tactical battle simulator yep you know um that's that's what you play it for and and the meat of that isn't the kind of you know it isn't a fighter uh, a fighter you give him the best sword the best armor you send him to the front and let him whack away it's pause to cast the the exact right magic spell at the exact right time uh-huh. you know so so knowing the magic spells and and having a character or your your kind of artillery it's all about the arty (laughs) (laughs) um but but i found a number of times in neverwinter nights two it was breaking out of that i mean i i don't recall i never got very far in neverwinter nights one but the crafting thing was i had never seen before and uh when you get late into the single player campaign there's this whole stronghold building side oh that's right yeah yeah um where where it's basically a money sink um you you tell there's there's a guy who's a builder it's much like in assassin's creed 2 hmm? um where there's there's a builder guy and he says you can do these are the things you can do to build up your stronghold. Here's how much it will cost. What do you want to do? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so there's that, but then there's also a uh, uh, you, you've got to build up a militia. So first you've got to recruit, then train, then um, get sergeants for them. And, you know, there's one sergeant who's a better trainer and one sergeant who's better at – uh doing patrols and one sergeant who's who's better at they they throw in the occasional uh uh secret mission for for the militia and you just when you it's it's much like in normal d and d um where once you get high enough level you're the quest giver instead of the quest receiver ah right right right
0: uh, and, so, and what do you get for building up your stronghold and the militia? Is, is there any gameplay effect for this? You mentioned the money sink, but did they build it into the story somehow?
1: Uh, yes, there's there's a uh, an army amassing, uh, a shadow army that's coming, and uh, the the big finale is uh, which I haven't gotten to yet. <laughs> um, but it seems like there's going to be a gigantic battle at my stronghold mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for for the very end of the game. Um, and I'll probably lead a ragtag bunch through to kill the head honcho on the other side. Now I'm assuming you did not play Dragon Age, is that correct? Uh, I have bought it. Okay. It, it is sitting in my Steam uh, huge list of games right. that I have uh, paid Valve money in order to have a list of games.
0: I think they did a similar, like, the, the overarching structure of Dragon Age is similar in a way. Uh, it doesn't sound like it's as hardy with the building a stronghold and recruiting a militia, but it is that whole thing, like, leading up to that climactic battle at the end, and it's what resources you've marshaled for that battle come into play at the end. Like, that's the payoff. Uh, hmm uh, now, one of the, the hallmarks of these kinds of games, a, a huge hook for, uh, those of us who play RPGs is the character development, uh, mm-hmm. that, what, is there any problem, like, because Neverwinter Nights is either, you could, you could, in one side of the coin say it's limited by, but another side of the coin is say it is enhanced by the D&D rules. Is it 4.5 or 3.1 or... It's 3.5. 3.5, okay. Uh... Does that help?
1: How well does that translate to a computer RPG? Um, well, actually, in Neverwinter Nights two, it's a difficulty setting. There, there is the normal difficulty setting, and then there's one one notch above normal is follows the three point five rules. Okay. So, I I'm not sure exactly what they've changed to make the normal difficulty setting, but I wanted. I play, I've played a lot of D&D mm-hmm. um, ever since I was 12. Um, and still, and actually, there's a, a quarter to three group that we they started. Um, we've been playing for about two years now. Um, but I wanted, I know the 3.5 rules, so for Neverwinter Nights 2, I wanted it to follow the rules that I knew. You know, So I think, like, one of the things it does, like, if, if your your wizard casts a fireball, um, in normal D&D rules, whoever's in the area of effect of that fireball uh, will take damage. Right. But in, I think, the normal Neverwinter Nights 2 rules, only bad guys in that area of effect will take damage. Right. Which is is kind of uh, against the whole. There, there's a plus and a minus to using a fireball, right? Right. It does a lot of damage, but anybody who's there is going to get that damage too. Um, so, so it, it, as long as it, it corresponds to the D and D rules, I know what to expect as far as how that that that. Translates to a computer game Um I thought they did really well With it mm-hmm. Um you can actually There's there's a a, um, a log That plays out during the game It's the, the chat window for the multiplayer Um And you can see Every roll Of every effect Every spell or every Hit um and what, what was rolled and um, how, how, why it hit or why it didn't hit. Which, by the way, I love
0: about uh, the Neverwinter Nights games. Like, I love the fact that they, that they show transparent dice. It, in a way, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change anything. But I kind of care. If I'm rolling an 18 to hit, I like knowing, you know, that I got, you know, right there at the 18, or if I only need a 10 to hit, I like knowing that I got an 18. So I hit him really hard. Like there's something about, Mm -hmm. I think growing up with having played D and D and having seen the dice and having that somehow skew your experience, like how closely (laughs) you either hit or missed.
1: Uh, Exactly. I I love those numbers. Yeah. Oh, I was, I was fighting these black dragons the other day. Uh, in preparation, I went back and started playing it again. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh you know, I'm casting these these super nasty spells slay living and disintegrate and all this stuff. and nothing is happening to these these dragons. Um, and so i I went back in the log and I saw, oh, it has spell resistance, then it gets a fort save uh so so those are and it's got huge pluses on both. So these spells are, are kind of useless on these things. Yep. So I could then plan my strategy based on what was going on from the log. And, that, and that's such a huge
0: part of the Dungeons & Dragons experience, and I love that BioWare appreciates that, in that when you sit down and the DM says to you, okay, you're fighting black dragons, you, know, you then break down with the DM the numbers, and you know what you're up against, you know what yeah. kind of things you need to roll, you know what... Resistance as it has, you know, it's going to breathe. Uh, what do they breathe? Acid? Acid? I don't. remember my black dragons. But, but uh, yes, acid. Yeah. See, I, I got. It. I still got that in the back of my head somewhere. Uh, but that's part of the experience. And Bioware puts all that in that log, and they let us former or current D and D wonks see all that information. And conversely, they also let you ignore that if you want and just play it as a, you know, sort of a real time action.
1: Module combat module mm-hmm. if you want. Uh-huh. Now you always say Bioware games are are a series of rooms.
0: <laughs> well, that's wow. That that certainly holds true to the Neverwinter Nights games, though. I mean, that's kind of their roots there. This idea of okay, here's a shoebox, and I'm going to put this in it, and then I'm going to link it to this other shoebox, which again is very D and D, by the way. I remember making yes. dungeons on graph paper, and it's that that same feel. Like, you've got a grid, and you arrange them in your rooms, and you link them together. And you write in your little module. You know, you, you give the room a number, and then you write your module. You know, you write that number, and you write what creatures are in the room. And as the DM, the description you're going to read out loud to the players when they walk into that room. Uh, so, yeah, do, do you disagree with that assessment,
1: that there are serious? series? Well, uh, th- that's kind of the, the micro thing of it. But the, mm-hmm. there's also the world map. Uh, which I suppose is just a list of rooms. To look at it <laughs> They're <way>. bigger boxes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> what did they do? Didn't they do some new cool overworld stuff? Or maybe I'm thinking of some of the third-party modules. But
1: did they do some uh, cool overworld stuff in Neverwinter? No- well, you can you can make a pretty big map mm-hmm. um, that without you know kind of well. Especially it's it's how many years old now? It's four four or five years old. Um, so you can make a pretty big map as a playing area uh, and make it outdoors um, and, you know, plop a fort in the middle of it. And then within that fort, you can put uh, an underworld or, you know, little little buildings or whatever, um, which, uh, I mean, compared to like Oblivion, that that kind of big, wide, I can walk from one end to the other without seeing a loading screen, yes, you're going to get loading screens in all the BioWare stuff. Um, but I, I, part of it, I, I don't know, I, I, there, there's lots of outdoor stuff, and, and that's the kind of, that translates to the, the D&D kind of random encounter thing where you're like, okay, it's going to take you three days to get to the ancient monastery, you know. So what happens, and then... You know, some dice get rolled, and the the DM just kind of draws a road and some bushes over here, and you know this kind of uh, area that you know he's just making up on the fly. It's called improvising. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So actually, in the storytelling class, they all have to uh, to play D anD. D Thanks. of course. Yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Which, amazingly, if you think about the other thing, so many modern games uh, have their roots in D and D. You know, whether it's it's a, a kind of tactical strategy game uh, or role playing games, um, and I, and I asked the kids how many of them have played D and D, and usually. 5 to 10 in a class of 25 have ever played D&D. Mm-hmm. So I make them just so that they've had that experience at least once. Right. You know, it's funny Dean you talk about uh
0: how other games are influenced by D&D and what elements have, have worked their way into other games. It just now occurs to me. I'm playing a shooter called Lost Planet 2. And it's, uh, it's a Capcom shooter, so it's very Japanese. It's really weird. It, it, it bucks a lot of normal shooter conventions, which is partly why I like it. But what's driving the game for me is basically this idea of loot tables, which I remember in D&D you beat something and then you roll on a chart to find out what loot you got. And this is so permeates like action RPGs. You know, You kill something in Diablo and you want to see what it's going to drop. You know, there's that, right. that slot machine mentality. And Lost Planet, this, this Japanese, sometimes clunky huh. shooter, when you kill stuff, you get money that you... You don't literally put it into a slot machine, but they call it a slot machine. You take this money, you go to the main interface, and you go to something that they're calling the Lost Planet 2 slot machine and you put coins in it, you know, and you pull the handle, and it's full of junk. that's no good, just like little titles you can put in front of your name or, or emotes your character can do. But But shuffled in there are also the new weapons. That's the way you unlock the weapons. You don't get to level three and get the shotgun. You earn money to put in the slot machine you pull the handle and you hope you're going to get the, the the shotgun and and that all goes back to those loot tables in D&D where you're rolling hoping you're going to get the plus 3 sword instead of the, you know the 10
1: copper pieces or whatever right, uh, right. <laughs> there's there's actually a way to randomize your dungeon as oh. you're playing it in those old tables
0: oh oh so. I thought you were going to say in in a Neverwinter Nights 2 like dungeon builder I, I was like no no okay But uh, that's all tiles and stuff. But see, I, I would love. I, that's one of the things I love about Diablo, by the way, is those randomized dungeons built from tiles. I, I, I really wish that there'd been. And I'm sure there are probably mods that let you do this, that let you create a randomly made, just rolled dungeon in the Neverwinter Nights two or one uh, world builder, whatever they call it. Uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: It's this idea of you know a dungeon as a slot machine, to uh, just randomly right.
1: build it. Yeah. Well, so. as As graphics have gotten uh, uh, more advanced, I don't know. I uh, I talked with the the Titan Quest guys about randomizing Titan Quest, um, and they decided very early on that that the handcrafted map would make for uh, a better experience than than the randomized thing. I mean, what about uh, Hellgate London? (laughs) Oh,
0: that was that was randomized that had randomization in it. Yeah, (laughs) it helps if you've got a good game as well.
1: (laughs) I mean, that's a well, that I guess Torchlight is random, isn't it? I don't think so. No, Uh,
0: I'm you know, I could be wrong. I have not played it enough to know, uh, but I thought those were handmade. I'm not sure. You know what? If it's randomized, they've done a great job of making it look not randomized.
1: Uh, well, the 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 Titan Quest guys they randomized their um their monster placement. Right. Right.
0: And then so that it would yeah. be
1: a different experience every time somehow. Right. Uh, and that that's one way you can do it is,
0: and in a way, and I'm sure you know loot tables are almost always randomized anyway. Uh, so it's, yeah. you've got that going. Uh, so have you uh, have you found any great? Modules for Neverwinter Nights two.
1: Um, I played my my kids module. I have played over and over and over again. Um, that's that's the one that I've been playing. <laughs> See, the, the, part of my job is advising these student projects. Right. Aside from teaching the classes, they they have their senior year, their big final project where they they put together a group of, you know, three or four uh artists and, and programmers and they, they make a game. Um and in advising these projects, I I ended up playing through their module oh God probably four or five times. <laughs> um, and it you know, the point of of doing a Neverwinter Nights mod is that it's um It's longer and more in-depth than, you know, an arcade type of game. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So they claimed that their playtime was like three hours, but it would take me like four or five hours at a clip.
0: (laughs) And I I don't ever want to hear anybody who teaches a class to gripe about grading papers until you've been through Dean's shoes, by the way.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well... Yeah, you have to well just like I make the critical studies kids play bad games um uh th- once they they make a game I mean par- part of my job is uh is to QA their stuff to uh to to uh, the only way to read the dialogue in a bioware game is to play the game Wow Dean that sounds painful you you're basically a beta tester for
0: uh, amateurs and I don't mean yeah. that with any disrespect. I mean that descriptively. So yeah, <laughs> that's going to be rough. Yes
1: for students <laughs> um, Yeah, so um, But you know that's that's the the plus side is that unlike beta testers. They actually have to do what I tell them
0: Ah nice very nice you can actually have an effect, right,
1: <laughs> so yeah, so when I say you know this dialogue is just awful, or uh, at one point the the um the mayor of the opening town was wearing this jaunty pirate hat, and I'm like you know his his town is dying around him, there's a plague. <laughs> you go in there and and he's got tusks and a pink pirate hat. What the hell's going on there? <laughs> So if that was a paper you were grading, I can
0: imagine a red X along with the note, Inappropriate attire, exactly. <laughs> minus one. <laughs> exactly. Are <laughs> uh, so are these, do you maintain these? Like, is, is it fair to post your students' modules? Is there any place that people can download and see the kinds of
1: things that you play through? Um, uh, yes, there are. Um... They should be linked, although they're not always. Um, from our website uh, at the school, uh, usually we highlight uh, the best. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the website there is imgd.wpi.edu. Uh, that's our program. So hopefully
0: uh, there will be a we can link to it in the thread for this podcast. Uh, sure, people can click on that and, and see some um,
1: modules. But but the actual module itself uh, is uh, core corruption, and they have their own website. You know, their own. Hey, our cool game website. Right. right. Um, but I don't remember the URL for that off the top of my head. We'll get that in the thread.
0: Uh, so, you're, you, do you anticipate finishing Neverwinter Nights two anytime soon?
1: I am so close. Okay. I uh, at this point, all I have to do. Is uh, send send my militia to help defend Neverwinter, and I'm pretty sure they're going to fail, which will bring the war to my my stronghold's doorstep. So basically, the game is waiting on you to pull the trigger to
0: br- to bring about the script for the in-game confrontation yeah. or whatever. Right.
1: I got to tell you, we we started an hour later than uh, than we had planned. Mm-hmm. And it was either uh make the meatloaf or play another hour of Neverwinter Nights 2. <laughs> I, I've helped delay the uh onslaught
0: then. <laughs> yes. Had the meatloaf turn out. Is the meatloaf made? No the, the
1: meatloaf is made, but I have to put it in the oven. I haven't put it in the oven yet.
0: Okay. Now before you put it in the oven Okay, I, I have a real real quick, I have a random question to ask you that has nothing to do with anything we've talked about. Okay. You ready for this? It's going to use a verb that I'm not real familiar with. I might be incorrectly using this verb, because, Dean, you and I are both in our 40s. I'm going to try to use a verb that maybe somebody in his 20s might use. This might come across uh, like, you know, when your dad tries to sound hip. So uh, let's see how this works. But here's the random question. Ready? Mm Mm-hmm. What's the last song that gobsmacked you? Hmm.
1: Hmm. Um. That just just laid me down.
0: I'm assuming that's what it means. I'm I'm hoping that, I used that it right. Made
1: me stop. Yep. Uh. Uh. Probably into the fire. That's uh, a Bruce Springsteen song mm-hmm. about uh, uh, firefighters going into the the towers at nine
0: eleven. Whoa. Oh. That does sound gobsmacking. Uh, when, when, and where did
1: you hear it? Um, off of the, that album of his, The Rising. This was, you know, fire, whenever it came out, mm-hmm. that was that just just blew me away. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's off of The Rising. Uh, and you're a Bruce Springsteen fan, I presume. I am. I am originally from Pennsylvania, and on my prom night, we went to Asbury Park, New Jersey, because that's what you do. <laughs> uh, what, uh, tell me, do, is it a famous song? Would I know it? Uh, no, it's not. It's, it's like the third song on the album. Right. and The whole thing, that whole album is like Bruce Springsteen sings about 9-11. Okay. So it's not exactly a fun album um but it, you know it's got it's got some good songs on it but that you know I was just sitting there with head set headphones listening to uh to the new Bruce Springsteen album and man that thing laid me out now
0: uh I understand a special treat today you're going to sing part of that song for us today
1: <laughs> no I am not
0: okay I didn't know if I could get over right <laughs> that uh what inspired this question is I w- I was driving recently and heard a song that I've heard a million times before, but I feel like in a weird way I heard it for the first time, and I was listening to it and going, whoa, this is an amazing song. How come I never appreciated it before? And it was Don McLean's American Pie, uh, which, oh. you know everybody knows that song, and I, I guess I hadn't heard it in a while, but it came on the radio, and I was just like so just bowled over by it. I was like, wow, how did I... How did I not understand just how, how, how wrenching and poignant and powerful this is? Uh, and it's the sort of thing where I, I got home and I sat in the car and let, let the song play out before I got out of the car. And I was just like, man, it's been a long time since, especially yeah. a song I already knew, since I was like, that, that's, that was a powerful experience. And I don't know what brought that on, but uh, I, there's a Madonna version of America. Right, It's awful.
1: You know what, you say that and I, is it really awful? i love madonna as a child of the 80s i love madonna but she should stay away from like classics (laughs) well i'm inclined to agree with you now but the thing is i for whatever
0: reason i had the madonna version of american pie on my ipod uh many years ago and the girl that i was dating we would uh exchange ipods when we would go work out uh and to to just sort of listen to the other person's playlist on random, it's sort of the equivalent of, of looking at someone's DVD or bookshelf or, or whatever. Uh, and I remember how much grief she gave me about the fact that I had the Madonna version of American Pie on my iPod and I remember thinking, "What's her deal?" Man, isn't she awfully like snooty? And, and <laughs> uh, but I, I think now, having having really really heard American Pie the other day, I think I can understand that sentiment.
1: Uh, yeah. So there was um, for the soundtrack for Dick Tracy, the, the movie Dick Tracy. Right. Uh, she did a duet with Mandy Patinkin, and you could just. It, the difference between those two voices, just Mandy Patinkin just, just chewed her up and spit her oh, out. Oh, ouch, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she sounded thin and reedy and just, ugh. Right, right. Uh, and, and again, I love Madonna. I think she's great. In um, certain
0: contexts.
1: <laughs> when when uh, I, I had a, oh, jeez, way back when, when she was on Broadway in David Mamet's Speed the Plow right um and mamet had a a a book published and he was doing a book tour and a friend and i were going to you know do go to his book signing and reading or whatever and we're driving there and and um we're like what are you going to ask mamet when we get to the QA section i don't know what do you what do you want to ask oh, well I want to ask him: Is Madonna a babe or what? <laughs> God, tell me that did not come up. Well, so so we sat there and for like forty five minutes, we said, "How do we make that sound erudite?" And um, I actually asked Mamet, "I'm like, um, uh, you you've been known to work with the same uh, crowd of actors." in in production after production and movie after movie, Um, and uh, I noticed that that Madonna is now starring in your your current uh, production, and uh, I was wondering what Madonna brings to the table that your usual stable of actors. Okay, that's well
0: put. That's much better than, is Madonna a babe? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) He got really mad. Mamet did. Yes. Oh, that's awesome, getting David Mamet mad at you. Good.
1: Yes, because mainly because what Madonna brings to speed the plow is butts in seats. Box office, exactly, right, right. Yeah. But he can't very um, well say that. Right. Um, so it was a bad question to ask him. Yeah. Um, because he that would then have to admit that Madonna puts more butts in seats than David Mamet. Ha! Uh-huh. yes, yes. And at the time, you know, it's Broadway. He's he's a playwright on Broadway. You can't get better than that.
0: So, so what was the, what was the name of the Bruce Springsteen song you mentioned? Into the Fire.
1: Into the Fire. Okay, I believe. No, no, uh, I suppose. Nah, screw it. Uh, um, it's like the third song on the Rising. Okay. Uh, uh I believe it is. I could. Pull it up on my iTunes, but I'm afraid it would take too long.
0: That will, I'll go with Into the Fire. Uh, I'm sure we will be corrected if that's not the case. But here's the deal for those of you listening. If you want to post for a free game for the drawing in the What's the Last Song that God Smacked You, you have to use the words in your post somewhere, American, pie, or fire because my answer is american pie, <laughs> dean your answer was into the fire, into and the are too common, so we're just going to go with fire. So that those one of those three words, american pie or fire, has to appear somewhere in your post. If in your post about what's the last song that gobsmacked you, one of those three words appears, you go into the drawing for a free game. So, there you go. Those listening, join us for the uh, that this week's little secret thread. So, yeah, I can never do those. Why not? Because you, um, you, you don't want to be eligible for a free crappy game from my uh, closet of lousy games here.
1: No, it's just I I listen to the podcast in, like, clumps. Ah, right. And by the time maybe you
0: get around to the little secret question, the week has gone by, right? There, there's a narrow window exactly. to, to join these. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. But the, the cool and thing about some of them, though, is I think that's a, that's a cool conversation to have, is, you know, why does a song hit you a certain way and, and when that happens? So... Even if you're not in for the drawing, it's an evergreen topic, you know.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, well, uh, I started not posting in those threads at all, mm-hmm. and then I realized that I was not posting because Tom had asked a random question and everything else.
0: <laughs> uh, I, I still love people who just are like, "Why are you asking these dumb
1: questions?" You know. <laughs> <laughs> but I, so I felt like I'm I'm going to be not uh, on the in crowd who uses the right information. right, right. So I'd be, you know, one of the losers who didn't have the secret code.
0: But see, there's no shame. I mean, because some of the questions really are stupid, and I grant that. But but some of them have really spawned some great discussions from uh, people who aren't in that in crowd. And I don't, I don't see it necessarily as an in crowd. I mean, so there have been some amazing posts in some of those threads from people who didn't know what the threads were for. And that's cool. I'm fine with that. And that makes those posts no less valuable. Yeah.
1: well i I usually wait until i I'm sure that that the contest is over, and then I post in them. ah right okay
0: you <laughs> you don't want to be in that first week of clueless people. you want to come in so after it doesn't matter right
1: right so and then nobody replies anymore and mine is to be well
0: some of them oh rats, what was the one? Where it was the, it was the thread on birthday parties you remember, and a poster I think the poster name is is Miriam uh, had this awesome story about inviting a, a little Turkish girl to her birthday party. Yeah, uh, I loved that post. I mean that I I just was like, w- whatever it takes to make people relate stories like that, I'm fine with. And I love that. I assume Miriam is a she. I love that she told that story. Uh, that just was so touching. Uh, so I, I
1: don't know that we'll get that level in, in uh, what was the last song that gobsmacked you, but yeah. Well, I'm also expecting you know somebody somebody's got to tell me I have crap taste in music. You know, you know, I don't think people can say that about Bruce Springsteen. Here, I will confess
0: something, and this will tell people that this will uh, get comments where I have crap taste in music, but I. I'm not a Bruce Springsteen fan. I don't. I don't get the appeal. I've been called a communist for that. But that, that whole you know working class hero stuff that he does, and that I I don't understand the appeal of Bruce Springsteen. I just I, when a Bruce Springsteen song comes on, I'm like, okay, whatever. I'll I'll go listen to the the rap station or something. I just I don't get Bruce Springsteen. What am I missing? What's the matter with me? I
1: was I was 16, mm-hmm. um, and some some kids that. I was in the summer program at Penn State, and uh, some kids sat me down and said, you have to listen to this album. Just we'll come back when it's over. And, <laughs> and they gave me headphones and uh, put on Born to Run. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the thing about Born to Run, at least, and the thing that I like about Springsteen is he tells stories. Okay. It goes back to that. Okay, good. Um, he tells he tells amazing little stories that you get to fill in um, half of, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's the, the little Nebraska serial killer stuff or, uh, you know, I'm a working class guy, or especially Born to Run was all about being young and uh, knowing that most of the time things don't work out for people. Um, but knowing that you have to take your shot anyway—that's what Born to Run is about. Uh, that's what I thought it was about at oh. the
0: time. I was sixteen. I, I mean, I just—I just assumed it was like, "Hey, we're young and hip and cool." I didn't know it had that sort of twist to it. I, I've never really listened to it. So,
1: oh no, half, half the people, half the songs are about people who who take their shot and die. Whoa, or, or... That, that's kind of dark. You know, it's all it's all about being in Jersey and going to Manhattan. You know, that's, that's you know what Dean what that album's about. Okay,
0: Dean, I can I can say something you've now done for me, something no one has done, and it's made me want to listen more closely to uh, to some Bruce Springsteen songs. So I'm going to give this uh, this into the fire, assuming that's what it's called. Uh, uh, I'm, 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 sh- almost I'm
1: almost there.
0: <laughs> well, aren't you going to
1: feel awfully silly if it's not called into the fire? Uh, I will. This is- <laughs> There, there it is there it is uh my city of ruins let's uh where the hell is it into the fire
0: there it okay is. good that was a close <laughs> that would have been pretty embarrassing because we couldn't very well edit that out uh, <laughs> all right so those of you listening post in what's the last song that gobsmacked you use the word so we are right use the word fire american or pie uh Everyone else uh, listening, join us next week. We have with us—I uh, don't know how to say his name—Bahemeron, Bahemeron, Bahemeron,
1: Bahemirad. Also from here.
0: Yes, he's out. Yep, he's out there. At your end of the country. Uh, I just like to call him Santa one year. Ah, where did he get
1: you? Uh, he got me uh, two tickets to Tomb in Boston, which is like going and pretending to be Indiana Jones ah. inside this big set. Right up your alley. Uh, well played, Bahim. Yes. And a bottle of wine and uh Foucault's Pendulum. Whoa. That's snooty. <laughs> a little Umberto Echo for your Christmas
0: uh night. Nice. Yes. <laughs> Good book. Not even not the not the real popular one, you know, Name of the Rose, which anybody can read. Foucault's Pendulum. Wow.
1: <laughs> it
0: was it was the first ARG book. Uh Ah yes, yes, well put. Uh, but Bahim wants to talk about Quest for Glory, which, uh, you know, and, and use that Ooh. to segue into all those old Sierra adventure things, uh, which they're, they're, there's a relic. Uh, I'll be curious to mm-hmm. see what he's got to say about that. Uh, so, Dean, I appreciate you hanging out with me today. Uh, I wish you the best of luck in the coming showdown with the Shadow Army and with the Meatloaf.
1: I hope those books yes.
0: turn out well. We're going to be eating late tonight. <laughs> uh thanks for your time. It was great to hang out and I look forward to uh we'll we'll be seeing you around on the forum. Thank you, Tom. All right. Take care, Dean.
1: Okay.